So uh, on this retreat, it doesn't always happen when Narayan and I teach together, but it sometimes happens. And uh, she, um, her emphasis and endearing quality of the heart sets a base camp uh, that uh, establishes a sense of uh, groundedness and, and uh, a sense of orientation. What it allows me to do is I'm a Capricorn, which is a mountain goat. I head for the uh, head for the mountains, the ascent, <laughs> and I wouldn't do that unless there was established base camp. And some of you uh, want to stay uh, uh, with the heart, uh, just uh, that's fine. This is not meant to take people where they don't wish to go. But for those of you who have an adventurous spirit, let's climb together. So the, uh, the title of the talk this evening is called The Secrets of the Mind. The Secrets of the Mind. And uh, there's a sutta that I have been elaborating on out in Seattle for uh, some year and a half with 30 or more talks. It's the Satipatthana Sutta. And I just keep reading these passages that uh, seem so repetitious in some ways, and I keep finding uh, a Dharma treasure loads in them. And so one of, the, uh, one of the treasures that I have found in these passages as I flush them out is in the third foundation, which is mindfulness of the mind. First foundation is mindfulness of the body, establishing a sense of foundation or presence within the body. The second is foundation of feelings, which is the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling tones that each experience imparts, or we impart to each experience. And then the third is the ability to hold and orient awareness to the mind itself. So uh, the passage that introduces this particular foundation I didn't bring with me, but I, it reads something like this. It reads, uh, discern when the mind is concentrated, discern or watch or be aware when the mind is not concentrated. Be aware when the mind is angry, be aware when the mind is not angry. Be aware when the mind is happy, be aware when the mind is not happy. Be aware when the mind is arrogant, be aware when the mind is not arrogant. And it has endless repetitions of various states of mind that when you read it, you understand that the Buddha was trying to be inclusive of every state of mind. <laughs> that you don't say, oh, he left out sleepiness. No, <laughs> it's supposed to be all inclusive. So uh, I say, so I, I read that, and, and uh, perhaps the first time through it didn't res- resonate too much. But then I thought, oh, wait a second here. There's something very profound and rich in this. And because He's not suggesting that the mind should be one way as opposed to another. He says, see when the mind is concentrated and see when the mind is not concentrated. So he's not tweaking anything here. So there's a kind of an end of a doing or an end of a manipulation that so much of Buddhism is contained with some uh, skillful means and manipulation of mind states. But in this particular sutta, this particular area of this sutta, he is freeing us 
He's showing us a different depth, a different orientation. And so he's not asking us to take action upon anything. Simply to be aware that that is or is not in its presence or absence. And so in that, there's no resistance to whatever is arising in the mind. And so he's suggesting no struggle, absolutely no struggle or or fight mentality with any of these formations whatsoever. And it begins to dawn on us that maybe we need to do nothing about the mind. Maybe it's just fine the way it is. And when we understand that principle, I think, wow, what he's really doing is asking for a deep uh, acceptance of our humanity. He's really reaching into the depth of metta as well. He's essentially saying there's nothing wrong with us here. What a beautiful statement made kind of encrypted in this sutta. I often think of the suttas as being sort of like tomato paste that you have to add a lot of fluid to to have a decent sauce. <laughs> and <laughs> and so as we begin to flush this thing out, as we look at the implied dharma within this sutta, it really does come out as a very rich, and we've just begun here, so. <laughs> so he's, he's moving us first into a deep, abiding acceptance of our humanity and saying, essentially, there's nothing wrong with us whatsoever. Now, we should just stop there and pause on our ascent to really look, look at the view of that. Look at the view of that. Take that in. Take that in. So, oh, wow. And let us say that his word has seen, his vision has seen far richer and deeper than ours has. And so he knows this. It's one thing for us to say, oh, may I be happy. It's another thing for him to say, there's nothing wrong with you in sutta or other forms. And so there's a, a kind of way that, it, that assuages our doubt. No more doubt on this one. We have, to, we have to keep moving now. And if we need some a stronger reinforcement of that, then of course Metta is there to help us. But that is the, one of the basic teachings of this sutta, I believe. And the next thing he's doing, which is um, quite amazing, is that since he's taken away any doing, any uh, tweaking of the mind whatsoever, he's simply taken the self out of the picture. He's just showing what is happening, what is occurring in the mind. He's taken the sense of me and all of my will and volition, no intentions for myself, out of the picture entirely. Instead, this formation, this third foundation of mindfulness, is not going to be around what I do with the mind or do to the mind, because he's taken that away, but rather what holds the mind 
when we do nothing to it? What holds it? What sees it? Because therein lies the foundation. He's not taking away the awareness. He's taking away the person who is efforting that awareness. What sees the mind is not divided, is it? It sees the whole. It doesn't weigh in on any particular point. It doesn't judge. It doesn't move into a judgmental role. It simply sees. That seeing is a whole, is a totality. And that's very important to remember as we go through here because that sense of totality, that sense of wholeness is really the freedom that we have been many of us have been yearning for on our ascent. So there is something, there's a deep principle, I believe, that he is intimating. Something extraordinary, extraordinarily rich, extraordinarily profound, that many of us miss, that is far-reaching in its implications. A deep underlining principle that really forms the foundation of his teaching and the direction of his freedom. And so I said, okay, let's look at this. What is that deep underlining principle that he's approaching in this sutta, sutta, within this sutta? He is, is saying in so many words by how he is framing this sutta, that the mind and I are not two separate things. I am not outside the mind because within the sutta, he covers every state of mind that could possibly be, including the arising of I, the sense of arrogance, as part of the mental formations that are arising. So he's saying that you and the mind are not two separate things. That you are not having a mental experience. That you are being held within the mind as a mental experience. Now that is profoundly altering. And it impacts virtually everything in our practice. Because, if we look at this, if I'm outside of the mind, then I can tweak it. I can do things to it. I don't like this. I can kind of, like a chemistry set, dump some of that on it. (laughs) Or just rearrange it a little bit to have some opinions on it because it's this darn organ that I'm having to carry around. Right? We can have all this kind of conflictual relationship and it won't hurt anything because the mind is kind of doing its thing and I'm sort of trying to maintain and control it and keep it under surveillance. And a lot of our practices are based upon that separation of mind and self. A lot of the way we practice has to do with us thinking of ourselves outside of the mind having a mental experience. And therefore, we try to effort 
our way, try to effort the mind or nudge it along. And the Buddha is saying, no, wait a second, we have it wrong here. You have it wrong here. The sense of self is another mental experience within the mind. So you, if you can think of it as, as awareness holding the whole of the mind, undivided, but that the sense of self is a one hemisphere of the mind kind of bickering with the other hemisphere. It's like a, a, an experience comes into the mind as a mental experience, and then there is a thought, which is another mental experience, about the experience it's just having. And we take our seat of identification within that thought. And then a lot of memory is associated, which is just more mental experience, associated with similar experiences we've had in the past or plan to have in the future. And there's a whole expectation and a whole storyline that goes, all of it contained within that single globe called the mind. And we see that many forms and ways that we practice, we, try, we weigh in on that a little bit. We try to, we, we sort of want to adjust it. What's amazing is, what's really amazing, is that when we first sit down, the first thing, the first insight that ever comes to us is this insight. For the first time any of us ever sat in meditation, we saw how out of control our thinking was. Now, if you're having a mental experience, deal with it. Get yourself tucked in. Stop the thinking. You can do that. This is your organ. (laughs) And you see immediately you can't. And you think, well, you know, you don't, we don't put one and one together. Because the implications are, we'll come to that, but the implications are jolting to us. So we keep thinking, well, there's some slippage here. I'm still having a mental experience. Except I just don't have control the way I used to have control. <laughs> so now, as we begin to flush out the depth of what this means to us, we begin to get a sense that the mind holds us, as I mentioned, and other things become obvious too. What you seem to be doing to the mind is the mind doing it to itself. The effort we apply, the effort we force upon our practice is really one part of the mind judging the other part and trying to nudge it in a particular way. Which does what? And this is an important point, I think, is it creates more resistance between those two hemispheres. Those two hemispheres don't necessarily like each other and are in a state of tension. And that state of tension keeps us kind of oppressive to whatever it is that's arising in that other hemisphere. And as Lincoln said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. A mind divided against itself is suffering. And so it's from this particular orientation of us thinking we're outside of our mind that leads to the very suffering that we're trying to solve 
through our efforts. And, but through our efforts, thinking of ourselves outside of the mind, just are creating more tension between the two hemispheres so that it's actually increasing the suffering. <laughs> it's amazing. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because when you talk to um, mental, uh, the mental health field, many therapists understand the implications of how to work with this underlying truth, but they don't understand the underlying truth. They have worked with the mind sufficiently to know that there are certain ways and things that you can't force someone to do to get over themselves, so to speak. But somehow the, the principle that drives all of this is, is missed, is usually missed. And I think to think of ourselves as a mental experience backs us up a little bit. To essentially, it essentially says, I am a thought believed. And when we begin to get a sense that we may not be the full embodied person, three-dimensional that we had thought we were, it takes us back. So we would rather stay outside the mind as one part of this equation, rather than to throw ourselves in. Now, there is no better way to be trapped within duality than by trying to get out of it. So, as we continue to force the issue with greater resistance, trying to change and smooth over and polish that ever-present mind of ours, what we are actually doing is creating the very split intention that has us see and perceive the world as being separate from us. It has tremendous implications for our practice. Tremendous implications for our practice. This is a closed system. You can't do something to the mind without it kicking back at you. There's no way for us to effort without it having its, its um, effect upon the whole mental frame of reference. So how do we work with this thing? How do we work with this cooperatively when we know or concede the point that we are a mental experience within this? I, it was interesting. I, it's one of those, uh, where were you when... Kennedy was killed moments. Uh, I was in a rocking chair when I had this insight. And I was just, I remember exactly where I was. It was one of those, you know, lightning bolt insights that you go, oh my God, I've been working this the wrong way. This is not of my making. This is not of my making. There's a moment of kind of horror <laughs> when we realize our impotence. And there's a moment in which uh, everything kind of falls into place at the same time. Because all of the pieces of the puzzle have always been there that have been said to us, though maybe not have been said in this concise, underlining, principled way. But even the instructions we give you really hold this underlying principle. 
Why would we want to be non-judgmental if your judgments were something else other than a part of the very mind's fabric? You see, everything, the allowance, letting be, all, all the instructions we give you really have at their base to leave the mind alone. Leave the, it doesn't mean to leave the mind alone and forget about it. That's not what we're suggesting here. But that with the entire mind coming together, with the non-resistance factor, something else, a different dimension than the two lobes that are, had been pitted against each other since time immemorial, that when that, those two lobes heal their tension, a different dimension arises that cannot arise as long as that tension is the oppressive force through which each other's each lobe works against the other. Oh, God. I'm beginning to get this now. This is starting to make sense to me. And much of the Buddhist teaching has to do with balancing some of that oppressiveness, that resistance that we have with skillful means so that we do things which are hopefully balance the energy out of the oppressive resistant part so that we can see it for what it really is and not feel so objectionable when it arises. And when we don't feel so objectionable, we have less resistance and the whole thing comes into oneness. So how to work with the mind? I love, I love this question. I love, I love this question because what do we do now? You know, is everything taken away from us? Are we, well, we might as well pack up and go home. It's done. <laughs> so one of the ways we can work with this is in cooperation with the instruction. But real cooperation with the instruction. I don't mean suspending your judgment. I mean going to a dimension in which there isn't any judgment. It's a different... It's beyond judgment. If you just suspend your judgment, you're still judging yourself. You're just holding yourself back like with reins in a horse. You're reining yourself in. But if you just drop all resistance then that's the first act of love that we may have ever known. Everything else has been kind of conceding the point, but not completely. And this is a complete releasing, a complete surrendering of judgment. The other way we can work is let's look and see what what we believe is outside of the mind. What do we believe that's outside of us? Who is that? What is that thing? Whenever I feel I'm outside of myself, I, I just open up awareness sufficiently to see if it's really outside. Or is it inside and I just made it outside? So it's a beginning to think and expand the field of attention so that it begins to include the thought that seems to be outside looking in. 
to get a feeling for where it is and how it is that we seem to perceive the world as being separate from us is another way of saying the same thing, really. And we also begin to think, you see, that if you think separately, you will practice separately. And if you practice separately, you will perpetuate separation. That how it is that you respond to this mental experience being two, two things, me and the experience I'm having, if you think of your practice as being like that, that I have to do something about myself, then that those thoughts in practice actually create the separation and perpetuity. And so that sometimes the very thing we want to, to remedy, the very thing we're trying to fix, is being caused by the way we're efforting towards that fixed, towards fixing it. So, let's look at some of the questions that we can pose in order to heal this mental rift. Am I subtly at odds with what the mind is doing? Am I claiming a reference of judgment over what is occurring, what's arising within me? That's an important one because where there is that judgment, of course, that's where the tension lies and the two hemispheres are split. Is the I that is claiming its superior position, the inquisitor, the keynote speaker, the master guide of all this, am I on to him? Am I on to him or her as a mental experience rather than something outside of the problem I have foreseen. Do I believe my efforts alone will advance me? Because this, uh, this is really a call towards a kind of faith that many of us uh, in Buddhism may not have accessed. It's a, when we only believe in our own powers, in our own force of volition, we miss something, something tremendously important something tremendously important, and that is the healing power of the universe itself. And as we step back, not in our awareness, but in our manipulation, in our force, that other can step forward. And it can't as long as we're leaning into the mind with such anticipation and manipulation. Am I trying to effort my way out of separation into freedom? Can't do it. This is the powerlessness of the practice. See, the practice has to defeat us at some point. At some point, we have to see that the way we have been relating to it through our force of will, we have to concede the point that that can't, it won't work that way. 
But just look at it in terms of the underlying principle and it makes complete sense. Of course you can't do that. Of course you can't. Now it takes us to the certain secrets the mind holds that I mentioned before that some of the mental health professionals know already, but without knowing this underlying principle, they, it doesn't really encourage a holistic approach to the mind. So let's look at some of these truths, these secrets the minds hold. The first is the more we avoid something, the more we ensure its return. Really obvious when you understand that the mind is one thing. Right? So if one part of the mind is trying to avoid another thing, a part of the mind, well obviously one thought can't stop looking at another thought. All it can do is resist that other thought, suppress it, repress it, deny that it's there. It takes an enormous amount of tension and energy to sustain a repressed thought so that I don't know it's happening. You can see how silly it is when you look at it from the underlying principle, can't you? And yet, that's what we do. I'm not going to have this thought. <laughs> and so it throws us into a kind of confusion. It throws us into a, into a, um, a, a vast, what, vast denial of what's taking place. And in the more tension I, I labor myself away from this other experience I don't want to have, the more that other experience follows me from that tension. It's right on my heels, so to speak. And so that's why we can't run from anything, basically. Because what are we running from? There's no running here. We can't run. If we could run, believe me, I'd be the first one out the door. <laughs> I'm not, a, I'm not some hero. I just see that I can't do it. That's the only reason I stay in this room. And so, okay, so I have to give that up. I have to give up thinking about separating myself out, avoiding something, and getting rid of it so that I'll never have to see it again. I don't like it. Even my not liking it creates a charge for it to come at me. So begrudgingly, only for me through understanding this principle, I say, okay, then that's it. I can't do that anymore. I have to face it. I have to face all the parts of myself that I never really wanted to. I can't get out of my suffering. I can't turn away from my suffering and pretend it doesn't exist because the same principle applies. I have to face it. I can't run my legs from this underlying principle have been amputated. I can't decide I won't be angry. I won't be angry any longer. So, what you can do, 
And I like to offer an invitation towards accommodating this principle and aligning ourselves to it. You can see it. You can understand it. And you can surrender your resistance to it. Remember, relax, observe, and allow. Those suggested strategies come from a unified mind, act in accordance with further unification. The mind will beat us. It's wiser than we are. It knows what we're doing. I'll wait this anger out. (laughs) I'll get it. It knows that. (laughs) What do you think? It's dumb to your thought? (laughs) It's always got the upper hand. So to end the ego's rule, which is to split the image versus the experience. I I don't imagine me being an angry person, therefore it's that kind of. We have to take the mind out of time. Now we're going a little higher, but hang in there, because there's ropes and clamp-ons and things (laughs) we provide. It simply means that we have to be present. That's all. That's all. Presence. Presence. You have to be wanting this thing. You have to want it. One of the... Ryan often says it has, it's an acquired taste. It's something that over time you begin to really appreciate. What it's a life of presence. A life of wholeness. A life of a dimension of wholeness. And it encourages further development of that. The second secret of the mind. We cannot meet the mind with the same energy it is emitting. You can't be irritated at your anger. What do you think? The mind is... Got one little bonfire over here and a little bonfire over here, and then those two don't mesh into one huge blaze. If you're irritated at your anger, <laughs> that's kerosene on the fire, right? <laughs> if you're annoyed with your impatient, if you're anything, you see, it just keeps feeding this thing. I'm going. Not, I'm not going to control my breath anymore. What does that mean? You have decided you're not going to, you're controlling the control. You're not going to control anymore, which is further control on the control. You see, you've got to be smarter than this thing. It wants to keep you in the falling domino theory. You know, just you hit this one and then the next one and then, and then, and then, and then it just comes right back around. So, what can we bring? 
allowance, interest, all the things we've been talking about. These are not remedies. These are the actual ways. These are countering the forces that are against us in this thing. These are the countering the forces of separation and division. Christ said something that I think is, if, I think that if all the Christians understood this, they'd all become Buddhists. <laughs> so we'll shut off the tape here. <laughs> he said, resist not evil. Resist not evil. That's an amazingly wise statement based upon just this principle. Because if you resist evil, you're actually, the resistance itself is the cause of the tension that inflames the evil. But if you don't resist it, what does it do? It's just a thought. It's just a state of mind. It's just, it has no bearing whatsoever on anything. So another secret, if I have time here, where you cannot force the mind to bring forth what is hidden. Have you ever forgotten something? <laughs> All of that's no use whatsoever. In fact, you're just shoving it down there further. But <laughs> if you just relax with this thing, it may come up, it may not. You may be gone, right? But the best way to see if it pops back up is just to relax with it, to change the subject a little bit. And then all of a sudden something might come up. And we all know that. You can't go down and start, you know, you can't dig it out again. It's gone. And that tension just drives it further away. We know that, see, but we miss the underlying, but the principle, the principle itself, the underlying principle is the salvation. So we want the benefits of the principle without having to look at the principle because the principle, again, relegates me to a backseat authority. So what is this, what is this call for? What's the, what's the practice remedy for that? Caring attention. Caring attention. When you see something and you feel it's holding the uh, oppressive side of the equation, just, just, just care the fact that you hurt. Care about the fact that there is pain there. Care about the fact that there is resistance there. And then in that caring, in that caring interest, in that caring attention, then the two halves can come back together and reform itself. So it's, it's not possible to force insight. It's not possible to have, to, I'm going to feel my, emo- I'm, not, I'm going to force my emotions to be felt. Right? Or I'm going to have that experience again. I'm going to, that one, I really, I'm going to go. See, all of those things just drive it crazy. It just, the tension becomes insurmountable. 
That's why relax, just relax. That's that's what the counterindication is here. Relax. Relax. I'm going to force forgiveness. You You can't force forgiveness. All you can do is see where you're unforgiving with patience. Be patient to your unforgiving attitude. Relaxed patience. Another secret, a final one that I'll be talking about. This is all or nothing. We can't leave any part of ourselves behind. And I love that. Because what kind of a person would we be? What kind of a world would it be if we could? if we could carve out what we didn't like and leave it behind. What we are experiencing here is the whole range of our humanity, every aspect of our humanity, the complete consciousness of the species. And it's for us to open and embrace the entirety of it. Each of us have within us the Mother Teresa, but we also have the Genghis Khan. And so did Mother Teresa. How we work with these pieces, how we let them fit into the totality of our experience, how we heal ourselves to the rift of what it is that we like or do not like, is the entire spiritual journey, not a part of the spiritual journey. Because when we're willing to just see, just see, not someone seeing, just seeing, without tension, without judgment, because it's only the seeing. Without tension means the only way attention can be established in the seeing is if you think you're outside of what you see. And you wane in with a comparison or evaluation of what we see. Then, of course, there's going to be tension. But when there is just seeing, this shifts. The perception shifts. The identity shifts. But it doesn't shift it shifts towards the acquired taste, towards presence. Towards contentment, because the whole of the mind is content. The whole of the mind is indivisible, but also invisible indivisible, and because of its indivisibility, if that's a word, it is invisible. It was only made something because of the tension and through the tension. It becomes nothing from that something when it is healed without tension, without resistance. Therein, lies the summit 
of our ascent. And so, as we practice, let us practice understanding this principle. It may not be where we are in our individual spiritual journey because we may be working to work with a particular energy or a particular force of oppression that we have lived with for so long that we need to build up a counter force so that we can even have a sense of evenness in ourselves. But let us not forget the underlining principle and believe that we can do this whole journey on our own volition. Let us be wiser than that. Let us at least keep that sight ahead of us. So even though we stay at the base camp, we can see the summit. And the seeing is everything. And may it be so. Can we sit for a minute or two? So after a talk, I'd like to direct you towards seeing completely with no part of you left behind. (laughs) See in totality. Laying down the struggle. And then you can feel something rising up. Some stillness that could never be accessed as long as we're divided. That touches the very core. It is not ours, but it is there, always waiting, always available, just beyond the struggle. Enjoy yourself. The surest way to know that you're undivided is the experience of joy. Enjoy yourself. Please leave as you wish.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.